Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Today, Drs. Gary Wartz and Blake Williamson are joined by guest Dr. Ed Holland, an ophthalmologist from the Cincinnati Eye Institute who is devoted to treating patients with limbal stem cell deficiency. He discusses his passion for this work and how it led him to starting his foundation, the Holland Foundation for Sight Restoration. More of his story coming up on Off the Grid. Support for Ophthalmology Off the Grid comes from Diamatrix, supplying surgeons with innovative products like the X1 Iris Speculum. Its unique ability to simultaneously capture both iris and capsule makes this device a game changer, providing superior stabilization of the pupil, capsule, and anterior chamber. Visit diamatrix.com, that's D-I-A-M-A-T-R-I-X.com to learn more or request a sample. Hello, it's Dr. Gary Wirtz again for a special episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Um, I always say that I'm excited about new topics and new guests, but I'm really excited about what we get to talk about today. Uh, we have Dr. Ed Holland with us uh, from the Cincinnati Eye Institute. Um, Ed practices right up the road from me, and we have actually shared patients. He's operated on patients of mine in the past and obviously taken wonderful care of them. Um, Ed's passion project and something that I think we all, we all know he's a fantastic cornea specialist, refractive and cataract surgeon, but one thing that he really has made his passion is treating patients with limbal stem cell deficiency. And today we have Dr. Ed Holland and uh, we're going to be talking about his foundation, the Holland Foundation for Sight Restoration. Blake, why don't you give us a little bit more uh, detail on what we're going to talk about today? Well, I tell you, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I feel like at least once a week, I'm seeing patients in my clinic. Uh, we've been in, around in our market for 70 years. We have practiced that uh, patients have been with us a long time. And at least once a week, I'm seeing patients who, you know, have a, uh, just a, uh, a cornea that's completely failed from some thermal injury years and years ago that no one ever really addressed. Um, and I ask them about it and it's just one of those things where like, oh yeah, the doctor said there was nothing that could be done. And uh, I think about things that, that, that Dr. Holland is doing with limbal stem uh, transplantation uh, combined with uh, uh, keratoplasty combined with real deal immunosuppression. And I mean like with the care of like a renal team and a care coordinator and all this. And, and he's been able to, to develop this approach, the, the, sort of the Cincinnati way uh, of doing this. So we're going to learn a lot about that uh, in today's episode. Really happy to to join you uh, on this one, Gary, and talk to Dr. Holland. So Ed, why don't you give us a little bit of background on, on your practice and, and maybe a little bit about what got you interested in this particular topic? Well, for, first of all, Gary and Blake, it's great to be here with the young stars of, of ophthalmology to be on your program. So I really appreciate it. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting journey. So it, it started back at University of Minnesota when I was a resident and my mentor, Dick Lindstrom, actually invited me to join him back on faculty after I left to do a fellowship in cornea. And, uh, you know, to, to his credit, he said to me, uh, in the middle of my fellowship, you can't come back next year. Um, I want you to do another fellowship. And I'm like, Dick, I, you know, I'm broke. My car's, you know, is 15 years old. 
he goes, well, we already have three general cornea surgeons and the, you know, the, the emerging field is immunology. And I, and I want you to go learn something about immunology and bring it back and bring an expertise that we have. And so Dick and I, um, you know, kind of talked about what this could potentially be. And we were going to build a high risk corneal transplant, you know, center of all those transplants that were rejected and, you know, and, and needed repeat transplants. And so I went and did a year at the National Eye Institute at the National Institutes of Health. And, and that was, a, that was a, you know, a, a program that was using uh, the newest oral immunosuppressive drugs, really not commonly used in ophthalmology. And I, I got to great, great uh, teaching and exposure to that. I came back to the University of Minnesota and I was getting referred all these high-risk transplants you know, multiple graft rejection. And what I quickly realized is that we could fix some of them, but a lot of them kept failing. And here was the breakdown. If it was a pure immunologic rejection, our oral immunosuppression, we regrafted them, put them on oral immunosuppression, they did fine. But the subset of patients, and they were chemical injuries, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, uh, aniridia, congenital aniridia. So what we didn't know in the early to mid 80s was the, the, the role of the limbus and, and stem cells and corneal epithelium. And that really wasn't figured out until the late 80s. And there were several you know, key papers um, uh, about the location of the stem cells, the function of the stem cells. And then it just dawned on me, you know, we can't fix these high-risk transplants until we fix the stem cell deficiency. So by default, I kind of had all these patients accumulated that I failed to fix that were really stem cell patients. And we had to figure a way to transplant limbal stem cells, either from a, a, a the deceased donor or a living relative, and there's advantage and disadvantage of both. And then we realized the second problem was we needed to immunosuppress them at a level even higher than those high-risk corneal transplants. And so once we kind of figured out really the true problem, it was limbal deficiency, and the true need was, which was, was the, the proper oral immunosuppression, we were kind of off and we were, we were able to, you know, start really getting some success. And then once you get a little bit of success in those patients, they start coming from everywhere. And, uh, and it's been kind of a passion of mine ever since. I wish I, wish I could have been in the room, Gary, whenever Dick Lindstrom was, was talking to him about going to do that second fellowship, because we've all been at the end of our training at one point. Right. And uh, and I bet you coming off that Iowa cornea fellowship, you were like, wait, what? Another fellowship? And especially in something such a niche like immunology, you know, yeah. we're looking at the NIH and immunology. Yeah. So what 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 convinced you to, to do that? Was it uh, I mean, did you really see this as a, as a passion project even that early because it's so underserved or how did you how did you agree to this? Well, Blake, you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, I was kind of overwhelmed. I mean, I had no money, you know, and Dick says, if you do another, do another fellowship, you're not coming back. I mean, that's, Dick is such a visionary. He yes. that to build a great department, we just didn't need a fourth cornea guy just doing PKs. And he said, you bring me something back we don't have. And, and you know, it's interesting. That year changed me from the other cornea people in my era. You know, I... I learned how to use, I learned a, a skill that, that my, my you know, colleagues didn't have. And it really, it changed my career forever. And Dick and I talk about it a lot. And, you know, he's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And he knew that I needed to do it. I didn't know I needed to do it. He knew I needed to do it. But 
I thought about it, and I, I really thought it, it would be it would be a unique skill set that I could bring and, and and do something to it. We just had to kind of figure out the real problem, and and the real problem was limbal stem cell deficiency. Yeah. So I so just as an aside, you know, I've worked with um, Doug Katz. So Doug Katz was the cornea attending at Kentucky when I was a resident, and I would always hear legendary stories about Ed Holland. Um, I talked to, so when I, the first ophthalmologist I ever saw do cataract surgery was awesome. And I think awesome was a year before Doug um, in that fellowship chain. Um, Awesome Paracha from. Yeah, awesome Paracha. And and awesome was sort of my archetype of the resident I wanted to be because always everyone said he was the best surgeon to ever come out of Kentucky. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's, it, for me, you know, getting a chance to talk to you about, about this pro- uh, project is fantastic. I also work with Paul Carpecki and, you know, you and Paul, I know work together. So this is for me, you know, co- the coming, the culmination of a, of a ton of stories about, you know, the, your approach to patient care, your approach to being meticulous and um, with your exam and having all the, the papers that you've authored about all these rare corneal diseases. So, um, you know, the, the thing that, and you've actually done limbal stem cell transplants on some of my patients in Lexington I've sent to you and, and we've shared patients. So it's, 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 I've gotten to see the whole thing from start to finish. The thing that bothers me about this is limbal stem cells seem like they don't exist, right? It's sort of like this magical ether. And the fact that you, were a, you all were able to figure out that these little cells, they're just hanging out in the limbus somewhere magically in the conjunctiva and that transplanting them would it's not just like a small improvement this is this is blind total like light perception to fantastic vision how when did you really when did the light bulb really come on for you that this was going to be game changing well i mean there were some pioneers way before me you know um you know there there was a report in the world corning congress in 1964 on doing a autographed to address, you know, a chemical injury. And they didn't name it right. They didn't know stem cells existed, but Barricare actually figured it out. And, and if you look at his original abstract, he, he did the original conjunctival limbal autograft, very similar to what, uh, what was reported by uh, Ken Kenyon and, Sh- and Schaefer saying, and those are two other pioneers. And then Dick Thoft, Dick Thoft in the 80s, was doing some precur- some kind of precursors to what we're doing. He called it keroepithelioplasty. Didn't quite know the understanding of the limbus, but knew that that peripheral cornea transplanted to to a disease service could make the service better. But it was really Professor Sung in in New York who actually you know this is the the importance of translational research. He said, by the way, these are specialized cells that the basal epithelium of the limbus and they create all the daughter cells for the epithelium. And if you don't have these cells, your ocular surface fails. And it was that key, you know, landmark discovery that got people thinking, how do we transplant those cells? And I give Kaz Sabota in Japan credit for doing some of the early uh, cadaver donor work. And then, you know, the landmark paper in the US was uh, the Schaefer saying Ken Kenyon paper on allografts. They did the first living related conjunctival level allograft. Now, what was missing, and, and, I, and I, you know, we've changed these surgical te- techniques over the year, but I think what we figured out was the success rate was not really good. And if you look at the early 90s when these papers were published, so they talked about 
different techniques using cadaver donor. Uh, we named the procedure keratolimbal allograft because it was kind of alphabet soup out there. And then the other, other procedure was living-related conjunctival limbal allograft. So those two allograft procedures were, were choices, but, but what, what uh, cornea people didn't really embrace was immunosuppression. So in the early 90s, a lot of cornea specialists did these procedures, especially the cadaveric one, because it was just easier to do. Sure. Limbal allograft. And the success rate was not good. It's because they used low-dose uh, immunosuppression for a short period of time. And I was fortunate when I started doing these to, to be at the University of Minnesota, which was the leading organ transplant center in the, in the, in the world. I mean, they did more kidneys there than anybody, the number two in, in, in uh, liver. They invented pancreas transplants. And again, things happen, right, that give you a break. So the chairman of the Department of Surgery, who was one of the leading kidney transplant uh, surgeons in the, in the world, he ran this big service. His wife needed a cataract surgeon. She came to me and he would come to her appointments and he'd say, all right, Dr. Allen, tell me what you're doing. Tell me what you're doing at the University of Minnesota to make a difference. And I was telling him about our program and I said, we're, we're having trouble with rejection. He said, well, talk to him about your anti-rejection protocol. And he looked at me and said, either you immunosuppress or you don't immunosuppress. What you're doing and what the rest of the country was doing was kind of, you know, immunosuppression light, if you will. And you know, if they did kidneys that way, they'd all fail. And so he finally just pushed me to 100% embrace basically the kidney transplant protocol. We do everything in our program just like the kidney transplant docs do. And that really differentiated our success rate. And I think if we talk about roadblocks for other surgeons, most cornea people, I mean, cornea people don't have that training. And that gets back to my year at NIH. I was comfortable going all in on immunosuppression. And when we get uh, patients referred in that have had failed stem cell transplants, I can tell you that almost every one of them had in, insignificant immunosuppression. I, and I, it's hard. That part of it is hard to, to a, for a regular cornea person without any extra training to, to handle. So it sounds like, you know, certainly the keratoplasty part of it hasn't really changed much. Obviously, the immunosuppression part is very, very different from what you're doing, from what, you know, other people may know about. Uh, what about the actual limbal stem cell transplant itself? Has, has surgical technique changed much for that at all? Or is pretty much the, the entire crux of this is just accepting well, randomized compression? I, I think our approach has changed a bit. That's a great question, Blake, because originally we were using one, let's talk about carolimbalograph, the cadaver procedure. We were using one cornea to fix one eye, but you, but you really couldn't you know, get that one donor cornea to surround the entire limbus. So we made a decision to use two corneas for one eye, and we kind of got a little pushback saying, well, how could you use two corneas for one eye? You know, it seems like you're wasting a cornea. And we would say that, you know, back to the eye bank way back, many years ago, these patients have had five and six failed PKs. I mean, we've wasted six corneas. So one of the rules is, you know, at first do no harm, right? Don't do a keratoplasty, a PK or a DAUG in an eye with total limbal deficiency. Your success rate is zero. And to this day, Gary and Blake, we still get, you know, a significant number of our patients from really, you know, good cornea, you know, uh, centers that have had a keratoplasty in an eye with total limbal deficiency. And it's almost like, it's like they're in denial. They see this eye that had a chemical injury. It was 10 years ago. They see a scarred cornea and they, you know, they try to do a PK. It's not going to work. 
And in fact, it makes the patient worse because they get secondary inflammation, neovascularization. Uh, they obviously are gonna fail because of the surface, but they ultimately reject. And then when we go to fix them, we need more immunosuppression because they've elevated their immunosuppression uh, or the, their, their immune system to donor corneas. So, um, so the technique has changed. That was one big difference. We, we use more cells, but what we've done the last 10 years was we kind of we started using the cadaver procedure most frequently because it was easy. You didn't have to find a donor. You didn't have to talk to a family member. You didn't have to operate in a normal eye, which is you know, a lot of people don't want to do. But we, we had a significant rejection rate, probably 20, 25%. And we started to do more living-related um, conjunctival limbal allografts. And the reason why we started doing those uh, early on was those patients who have severe conjunctival disease, the living-related procedure gives us conjunctiva as well as limbus. The cadaver donor really only gives us limbus. But we noticed, so, so those are the patients with Stevens-Johnson and, and bad chemical injuries. But we noticed we had a lower rejection rate. And so we've done enough cases now that we can compare our rejection rate with the cadaver donor versus the living-related donor, and it's much lower, and our success rate is much higher with living-related. So like the second thing has changed is we always try to do a living-related donor if we can. So we'll look at you know, siblings because you can potentially get a perfect match, just like in kidney. And we work with, uh, we've built this team with the University of Cincinnati, uh, their, their kidney transplant program. We just published a series of, of, of patients and pediatric patients. So we work with Cincinnati Children's Hospital. We use their, that, that renal team to help us. And they pick the donor, they pick the, the best match. Now, if we don't have a sibling, then we'll look for a parent or a, or, or a child because we'll get a 50% match. Uh, but if we can do a living-related donor, that's, that's our choice. And that's really changed in the last, say, seven to 10 years. If we don't have a, a living donor, then we default to the cadaver donor. So it sounds like, you know, as, as I was listening to you talking about, you know, even good corneal centers sometimes make these mistakes. Do you think that the situation is if your only tool is a hammer, every problem is a nail, and it's like, well, you know, we'll try a graft, the cornea is not clear. It's just like that second step of, of, of thinking of maybe it's not the cornea, maybe it's actually the limb. Do you think there's still like an, even though we know about limbal stem cell deficiency, do you feel like it still doesn't get the, the airwaves or press that it needs to get? You know, I've, I've, I've discussed this with a lot of cornea people, Gary, over the years, and it, it frustrates me because, you know, well-trained cornea people know about limbal deficiency. I mean, it's taught now in residency. I mean, as Blake, you said, you see these patients all the time. Now, you may not be able to fix them, but how do you look at a patient with a history of a chemical injury, an opaque cornea, and not know there's limbal deficiency? And then how do you make a division to do a keratoplasty? I think, you know, as one surgeon, I, I called him up, uh, it was about a year ago, it was actually uh, the serviceman we recently uh, had on, on, on our uh, LinkedIn page. And the surgeon, I said, why did you do a corneal transplant in a guy with a chemical thermal injury. He said, I thought I could get away with it. It's just like denial, right? I'm, I'm denying the limbal problem. I see the opaque cornea. Let me just see if I can sneak in there and do a transplant. But, you know, again, you can't. So it, it's been frustrating. I've tried to get the word out. You know, I don't expect a lot of cornea centers to even take on these patients, but don't 
don't do the patient harm. Don't do a keratoplasty and there's total limb deficiency. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Yeah, it's kind of like, I don't think there's really a hole in the posterior capsule. I think I can still get this lens out. It'll be fine. Right. There's a little <laughs> bit of that, right? We're like, yeah, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's, yeah. maybe it's not going to, you know, tear further. Yeah, there is. There is a bit of that. Yeah, but I tell you what, I bet you, if I had to guess, you know, for those people who aren't, I, I'm not a cornea surgeon. I don't do transplants or anything, but for those, for those cornea surgeons that do, I bet you if they had that one patient experience where they totally knocked it out the park, I bet you it transformed them. Much like when, you're when I was learning to hunt as a young man, you know, deer hunting, you know, I, sitting in the deer stand was just kind of boring until I got that first trophy buck. So I bet you there's been some patients, Dr. Holland, over the years. I was reading about one of your patients that I think served in, in the Iraq war and was injured with an RPG. He had a huge family, like eight kids or something. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so he, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a you know, fascinating story. It's a, it's a wonderful family. You know, he, he was in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, I can't remember which one, and they, they, they camped near this giant gasoline tank, and, and they're like, should we be here or not? And, of course, they lobbed a, a bomb in the middle of the night and killed a bunch of his platoon, and he got a chemical thermal injury. He comes back, they air back him to, to, to a military base in San Antonio, and they do a, a penetrating keratoplasty. And of course it failed. And then he moves back to Georgia and he goes to a university and they do a penetrating keratoplasty in his other eye. And of course it failed. So now he's got two failed transplants, he's blind and he has eight children. And he's a frustrating, uh, you know, kind of an angry guy. So he goes to a third center, another, another big university in the Southeast and they do a Boston K-Pro. Now Boston K-Pro has been a great invention, but We've published on the success of Boston K-Pros. If you look at Boston K-Pro for strictly high-risk rejection patients, the success rate is pretty good if there's not severe ocular surface disease. And so that's, that's the, the real indication. However, if you look at K-Pro success rate in ocular surface disease, patients with dry eye and patients with limbal deficiency, they have a much higher rate of infectious keratitis, stromal melts, endophthalmitis, and even glaucoma, and I'm, that is a very, very last resort. I would much, much rather do a stem cell transplant because if we fail at a stem cell transplant, we lose the surface. They're not, they're not any worse off. If they fail on a K-Pro, the complication, they lose an eye, and that's exactly what happened. His second day after his K-Pro, he had sudden loss of vision, called the resident call, and the diagnosis was made that it had inflammation. They gave him intravitreal steroid. He actually had a pseudomonas endophthalmitis and lost his eye. So he sits at home for a year or two, and they, you know, and his family, I think they find us online, and they show up, and I walk in the room, there's eight kids and a very angry veteran. And I don't blame him for being angry. And I, and I, and I said to the family, you know, I, I just need him to change his attitude and give me a chance, but I think we can fix you. And we did, he didn't, he didn't, his kids were really young. He didn't have any siblings. We decided we had to do a, a you know, keratolimbal allograft cadaver donor. And then three months later did a penetrating keratoplasty. And that gentleman now who was count fingers is 20, 30 vision. And he's driving, two of his kids are Olympic athlete wrestling um, level uh, wrestlers. And he drives them all over the country to these wrestling matches. And uh, 
you know, he's a guy we, we should, you know, he was served our country and, and I'm just glad we were able to participate in getting his vision back. It seems like, you know, these are really the nightmare patient that you see in your clinic. And, you know, you have made a career, really not a career, but a mission. It seems like these patients are your, your mission. And even though there's a, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of work that goes into this, I can't imagine, seeing those results has to be unparalleled in terms of the job satisfaction. How does that make you, I mean, I can only imagine how it makes you feel to think that you've contributed to, to the quality of someone's life. I think that's why we all got into ophthalmology, but I feel like you're doing it at a level that is really kind of unparalleled. Well, I, I appreciate those comments. You know, it was, um, it was frustrating to me to see, you know, blind people with multiple coronal transplants. And, you know, I, I, you know through a variety of years in education, I, find, I found this system, and you know, we call it the Cincinnati Protocol here, where I, I think there's two keys to the system we have that are the barriers for other cornea people. One is embracing full-dose immunosuppression like an organ transplant. And, and you can't do it with your friend who's an internist or a, a rheumatologist or an oncologist because, you know, the, the difference between uh, organ transplant immunosuppression and the protocols they use is the difference between pediatric ophthalmology and retina. I mean, it's very, very different. They use different meds at different levels. And so one of the breakthroughs I got was, you know, I had an okay program in Minnesota, but I didn't have a lot of collaboration beyond just guidance when I was at the university. I came here and the Cincinnati area has been very special. Uh, first of all, I work at a hospital called St. Elizabeth Hospital and they, I identified a problem. I said, if I wanna build a program here. I need, I need subsidy of a key person. I need a transplant coordinator. So if you go to a kidney transplant program, you don't spend all your time with the surgeon, you hardly spend any time with the surgeon or really the nephrologist, you spend time with the transplant coordinator. And that's the key person in our program. And, and St. Elizabeth has, has helped me, you know, pay for and, and hire a transplant coordinator. And, and the roadblock in other ophthalmic practices is there's really no revenue stream to pay for his or her time, you know, what they do. We don't have codes, whereas in organ transplant, they do. So that person manages all the multiple appointments with retina and plastics and glaucoma. I mean, half the patients or more than half the patients have glaucoma. Uh, but more importantly, follows all the immunosuppression. And right now, we're following 550 patients on immunosuppression, and we're tracking all those labs. A cornea surgeon can't do that. There's not enough time, and, and he or she doesn't want to do that. So that's one roadblock. We figured out, again, we, we looked at the kidney program. What do they do? Well, they rely on their transplant coordinator. Okay, let's get a transplant coordinator. And, and uh, the second thing is, you really understanding the nuances of immunosuppression. So we brought in the head of kidney transplant at the University of Cincinnati. And they actually see our patients when we need them to, but more importantly, we probably send him, his name is uh, Dr. Goval, we probably send him seven, eight emails a week on you know, who should be the donor. We're having problems with rejection. What, what drugs do we do? And they have, they have other drugs not even used in ophthalmology, like we use IV Simulec, which is a monoclonal antibody that you use it in high-risk patients that use it in kidney. We, we don't use it in ophthalmology. We do a test called a panel reactive antibody. That's a preoperative test that tells you 
how sensitized the patient is prior to to a transplant. So what elevates your PRA? Well, multiple pregnancies can do it, multiple blood transfusions, and multiple corneal transplants with rejection. So if we have a PRA of zero, we know we have a really, really good chance. If we have a PRA of 85, then we know this patient's gonna need a lot more immunosuppression. He's, he or she is high risk. And so having the nephrology team, you know, basically side by side with us, and he comes to our clinic, you know, periodically to see our high-risk patients. That's that's the key. It's the team we built here, the transplant coordinator and the nephrology team. And, you know, once we started getting success in, in adults, we started having children referred to us. And um, we just got a paper accepted the journal cornea on 19 eyes of, of 13 patients who are pediatric patients. And you think it's nerve-wracking to start immunosuppressing adults. You know, how about an eight-year-old? that we're now telling the family, we, we're recommending immunosuppression. But we're fortunate in this market, again, it's a special place. Children's Hospital in Cincinnati is one of the top children's hospitals in the country, and they have a great renal team. And Dr. Hooper, the head of that renal team, we, we called him up about seven or eight years ago, and we said, we have, a, we have an idea. We don't know if you want to be a part of this team or not. And he said, if I can help a kid you know, um, solve blindness, I'm all in. And so. Um, that team we've built has been special, and that's what's kind of missing, I think, at other programs. And it may seem, for folks listening to this podcast, I mean, it may seem a little daunting if you're a cornea surgeon out there, like in a small private practice, how do you implement this? You know, how can you, how can you do something like this in your market? But, but, but certainly if you're working at a hospital, and absolutely if you're working at an academic center, which every state has, like I'm listening to you talk, it seems like every academic center, so you should have at least one center in every state that's offering this sort of Cincinnati protocol, right? But, but, the, but the big piece missing is, the, is sort of the coordinator. And I think that's a big part of what the foundation that you started, the, the, the uh, Ed Holland Foundation for Sight Restoration is about. Can you kind of talk about that and, and sort of you know, how you can use this foundation to get a center like this in every state? Because if you're, if you're, in a, if you're an academic institution, you have renal, uh, you know, on the next floor, across the hall, you know, maybe not in a small private practice, but in a, in a hospital setting, in a university setting, for sure you do. Well, it's a great question. And I'll tell you how, it, that, again, how things happen, how, what changes your life. So a lot of people in ophthalmology know a guy named Bob Bemsey. Bob Bemsey, you know, worked at Allergan and he worked at BNL and, and, he, and he was instrumental in bringing Zydra to market for Shire. And uh, now Bob is, is a CEO of a, of a, of a startup, but, but Bob was visiting and he was in my waiting room seeing these patients and, and, and he wanted to know the story. And he, he picked up, uh, he just happened to pick up our cornea textbook and, opened the, and he just opened the book to ocular surface stem cell transplantation. He saw a bloody, you know, opaque cornea with neovascularization on one page and a clear cornea on the other page. He said, tell me about this. And I, and I told him, you know, what we do. And he said, you know, I've known you for 25 years. and I didn't know you did this. And, and so I walked him through it. And then he said, well, how many other centers are doing it? And I said, well, you know, there's a few, there's a handful of corneal surgeons that do it, but they, they you know, their volume is low and it's kind of overwhelming. And he said, well, why? And he said, I was in the waiting room. You had patients from Florida and Texas and New York. And why are they coming here? And I said, because, you know, a lot of corneal centers just, just can't get started. And then he said, shame on you for not teaching other centers to do what you do. He was like, he was like challenging me. 
And I said, well, the barriers, as we talked about earlier, is a transplant coordinator. And we've had lots of surgeons come visit us and, and, and see what we do, but they just can't get started. And they, they don't have revenue to hire a transplant coordinator nurse. And they don't have relationships with you know, a, a nephrologist. And so the, Bob was instrumental in saying, well, why don't we raise a bunch of money and we'll, we'll, we'll fund these centers and we'll give them money to start their program and we'll pay full-time equivalent salaries for transplant coordinators. And that's really how I got started. And then he met a couple of my uh, more wealthy patients in the Cincinnati area who've been in my waiting room and they've talked to the, 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 the servicemen, for instance, like, what are you doing here? And what are your eight kids doing here? And, and uh, tell me your story. And they, they were very moved by the story. So um, uh, one of the guys in the community here, Bob Saffy, who is a financial uh, advisor and, and, and a wealth manager, he's all in and, and, and helped us raise some money. And so what we're trying to do is build you know, five to six centers of excellence across the country. We're trying to raise money to hire their transplant coordinator for the first three to four years. Now, once their volume gets up, you know, they will have methods to kind of pay or offset the salary. But you can't bring in a, a nurse and pay her salary and have no patients, right? It just, you know, the department chair is not going to buy it. Or if you're in private practice, you know, your practice management team is not going to let you do it. So our hope is to, is number one, to fund the, the transplant coordinator. And then number two, to take our, our renal experience, Dr. Goval here at the University of Cincinnati, have him, you know, kind of break the barrier down to, to get nephrology involved. And, and Blake, one of the problems with the nephrology issue is that, you know, a coordinator guy calls up and says, I'd like you to help immunosuppress a coordinate transplant patient. And they usually say, no, I, I'm not interested. I have enough renal prior problems. I, but, but what our nephrology team can tell them is young, healthy people like chemical injured people, they do very well on immunosuppression. You know, if you look at the complications, and, and, and both of you guys know going to medical school, you read about the complications of program or cell set. They're pretty high and they're pretty serious, and, 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 and a lot of coronary people worry about that. But those are all in organ transplant patients who have all those comorbidities of high cholesterol, diabetes, you know, uh, obesity. You take a young chemical injury patient or a young anaerobic or a young Stevens Johnson syndrome, they don't have those comorbidities. And fortunately, we have got a lot less side effects with medication in our young adults. Now, older patients, a different issue. We sometimes decide we can't immunosuppress and we, we may not do a stem cell transplant. So, so the foundation is to raise money to create the team so someone in California doesn't have to come to Cincinnati or someone in New York. You know, I, I think the First of all, the surgical skills, there's fantastic surgeons in this country. The surgery they can do. It's the post-op management that is a bit overwhelming. And that's what we're hoping that we can create. And, and then we will, we will all follow the same protocols. Um, and we will, hopefully we can, we can build these centers and patients can have more access. Because we aren't, we aren't even doing a fraction of the patients that need to be done. You know, you know, most of the patients can't come back and forth to see me in Cincinnati. And, 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 you know, we're only doing a, a fraction. And we need, we need to, to have these other centers because we have figured a way to make these patients see again. So, Ed, tell, as, we're, as we're kind of wrapping up here, how are you raising money? I know you have the foundation set up. I assume there's a website that we can go to and a, there's probably a, a donate button, which I'm going to hit that as soon as we're done here 
I've been inspired by your story and I want to contribute personally. And I challenge everyone who's listening to this, please think about what Dr. Holland is doing. These are patients that we can't really take care of. It requires so much passion and skill and time. The least you can do is, is to go to the website and donate. But Ed, tell us how we can get involved with donating and what other plans you have for the foundation. Are you going to have events or other charity events? It's a great, you know, we, we had this great coming out party that, of course, COVID ruined, just like COVID has affected all of us. So we, we got our 501c3 kind of fast track thanks to Rand Paul here in, in Kentucky. He helped us. And we, we were having a big event planned on Cornea Day at ASCRS in Boston, in which we had uh, lots of cornea specialists involved. And we had all the CEOs of all the major corporations all to show up. And we're really going to tell our story. And, and that's been put on hold. So fallback plan, we were going to do it at the AAO. And uh, of course, that was canceled. So we really haven't had a coming out. We feel like we can get ophthalmic industry excited about this. Um, we have Jim Mazo on our board of directors, and Jim knows everybody, and, and, and Jim is... Jim is the best. He's outstanding, and Dick Lindstrom's on our board, and Dick knows, and so we, we want to go to ophthalmic industry, and then, of course, um, you know, each of these markets have, you know, wealthy donors who, who, who do like to donate to a worthy cause, so we'd like to tell our story when we build a center in L.A., we'd like to tell a story to that area, you know, we're going to go to, you know, Minneapolis as a center of excellence. We're going to go to New York. Um, and we think we can get the local ophthalmic community involved and, and go to some of the, you know, the, the, the big donors. And then there's large foundations. And we, since we just got our 501c3, we're now going through the process of applying for donations from the, from the kind of the big foundations that supports things like this. So tell us your website. I assume we can Google uh, Holland Foundation for Sight Restoration and find Correct. the- uh, Right, and it's, okay. just, it's just being launched. I'm not sure if the donate is there, but it, it's just being, I, I think there's an address you can email. Um, and to, to make everybody feel comfortable, first of all, I didn't pick the name. I give Bob Dempsey my name on it. I just wanted, you know, stem cell site for restoration, but stem cell was being used by a lot of other organizations. So. But it is through the St. Elizabeth Hospital, so we are we are we are housed within uh, a big hospital foundation. So, and I actually I don't sit on the board. I'm ex officio. I don't decide where the money goes. Um, you know, it's our it's our um, executive committee that will then decide where the money goes and how it's being used. And I will just be there to advise. That's fantastic. Well. Ed, I, it's, it's obviously an honor to talk to you. I applaud the work you're doing. These are the kind of things that, are, that just move our, our, our profession forward. Uh, Blake, any final comments from you or, um, on this topic? I, th I feel so inspired by what, by what we've heard tonight. 100%. I, I just ask that everyone who's listening to this podcast, uh, you know, stop what you're doing at the end of it if you really enjoyed it and you also felt inspired uh, and look it up and see what you can do to donate to help the cause. And Dr. Holland, I'm looking forward to the coming out party. If you need any help planning that, I'm your guy for that, okay? So definitely give me a call. I know. That's right. I know. <laughs> That's right. Blake throws a good party. It's a, it's, I've, I've heard about this podcast, and uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be on and, and to, to, to talk with you guys. Um, I've certainly followed both of your careers, and you are the, you know, you're the next generation of uh, stars that can make ophthalmology better, and I just thank you for having me on tonight. Thank you.
Well, with that, we'll say goodbye. Thanks again for tuning in to another special episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time. Thank you to Dr. Holland for joining this episode of Off the Grid. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. For more information and opportunities to support the Holland Foundation for Sight Restoration, please visit the organization's Facebook page. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time. Support for Ophthalmology Off the Grid comes from Diametrix, supplying surgeons with innovative products like the X1 Iris Speculum. Its unique ability to simultaneously capture both iris and capsule makes this device a game changer, providing superior stabilization of the pupil, capsule, and anterior chamber. Visit diametrix.com, that's D-I-A-M-A-T-R-I-X.com, to learn more or request a sample.